This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. Just gone 10 past 2, and a wonderful privilege to be with you on this very, very special day. I think a very significant day in the history of our country, in the history of South Africa, with all the things that are transpiring, that are about to happen, that are happening, that perhaps should have happened. Um, it is quite amazing that we're sitting here today and to reflect on the fact that there is something that stands in no less than a Mishnah, um, which tells us, in the Talmud in other words, that tells us quite specifically that Mishanichnas Adar Marbim Basimcha. What does that mean? It means that tonight, which is the beginning of Rosh Chodesh Adar, from the beginning of the month of Adar, Marbim Basimcha, we increase in joy. Now that's not meant to be some kind of a flippant statement and perhaps only dictating to us how we should uh, behave, what our f- spiritual posture should be, but perhaps it's also somewhat of a prediction of things in the future. We're about to enter a period of time of joy, of simcha, of uh, positivity, and it's not only positivity for <coughs> the Jewish people, it's not only positivity for each and every one of us as individuals, but in fact it's an era and a time of positivity that we are about to enter that is going to uplift, that is going to be joyous, that is going to create and foster a a tremendous change in a perhaps otherwise bleak or negative um, outlook. The difference, of course, when it comes to Judaism is that our general Posture, our general kind of mindset is supposed to be one of simcha. We're supposed to be joyous and positive and happy all the time. Happy with our lot. Happy in the understanding that whatever God delivers to us comes from Shamaim. It comes from God. And God would never do anything to us that was absolutely from top to bottom, inside out and back into our spiritual beings is um, in any way, God forbid, negative or destructive or um, incorrect. Here we're talking about the fact that God is good, God does only good, and therefore I need to be happy with that all the time. But when it comes to the month of Adar, there is a stepping up of uh, the pace of that simcha, the stepping up of the pace And the texture and the depth of this kind of positive outlook, of positive thinking, of joy, of happiness um, that we are supposed to take on board and we're supposed to exude. And it's fascinating and interesting and quite wonderful, if you think about it, that um, the the Talmud writes this uh, thousands of years ago. That the month of Adar is um, such a positive energy that comes in with it. And of course, today is um, the day before Rosh Chodesh. Today is um, the Erev Rosh Chodesh, tonight and tomorrow. Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of a brand new month. Yes, of course, if you look tonight and tomorrow night at the moon, you will see that there is a dark sky, that the moon is um, um, in its phase that we call the new moon, and it heralds the arrival of much better times. It heralds the arrival of good things, of positive things, of a positive energy. It predicted all the way back then, happening again right now. And when we think about this, um, it perhaps warrants that we should turn our attention, at least um, in some way, to be thinking about what is it that actually makes 
this month so special? What is it that prompted our sages to tell us that Mishanichnas Adar Marbim Basimcha, that when the month of Adar comes in, we increase in joy? Were they simply referring to the fact that somewhere, somehow, along the way, we have a um, um, a festival that occurs during this month, which makes it so happy. Well, surely then it would apply to any of the months in which there are festivals. Um, surely the month of Nisan, next month, when Pesach occurs, should be much more joyous. After all, that's when we quit Egypt. That's when we got out. That's when we were redeemed from our slavery. That's when we became free people. Isn't that something to be even more happy about? Yes, of course, the month of Nisan is a joyous month. But it's not said about the month of Nisan that Mishin Nichnas Nisan Mar Simcha. It is said about Adar. And why? What is this about this month that warrants the special mention that makes us feel um, so upbeat and that brings this um, element of Simcha, of joy, right to the fore? Perhaps if we think about it, it is because... We were hoisted up from a uh, very, very difficult position um, at the time. And when this all happened, in fact, it was even the ilk of Haman and the story of Purim who really believed that he had hit on the month and the occasion that we as the Jewish people would be and should be at our lowest. Let's briefly paint the picture. We were in exile. It was a newfound experience for the Jewish people. We hadn't been there before. We had lived for hundreds of years with the temple. We had lived um, with the glorious wondrousness of what that all meant. And now we were thrust into the depths of uh, difficulty and of darkness, into the uh, state of, um, uh, of abandonment that we may have felt. And after... 60, 70 odd years, Haman, Achashverosh, rise to power. They become the leaders of the, of the, not the free world, but the known world of literally all of civilization at the time. And the Jewish people are um, the very last on the agenda. They're the ones who have now been thwarted at their game of uh, being supreme, of having some kind of spiritual greatness and connection. And we were vulnerable and we were downtrodden. And we were downcast. And all of a sudden, the story of Purim comes about. And what was the story of Purim in this context was the fact that Haman and that Achashverosh, these two um, uh, leaders and these two people with a very, very sinister edge to them, wanted to destroy the entire Jewish people. And why did they um, want to destroy us was for one simple reason. That they saw us as being vulnerable. We were split apart. We had nothing going for us as a nation. We had had, had our temple destroyed. We had been sent into exile. There was nothing for us. No land, no home, nowhere. Not only refugees, but um, worse than that. And a people who was fragmented and split apart, they saw this as our Achilles heel and an opportunity to go for us. And at that moment... Haman seems to need just one more vindication. He says, you know, this is an opportunity to destroy the people, but how will I know that I'm actually doing this all right? And he casts lots, 
and the lots turn out to pick the month of Adar as being the occasion, the time to destroy the Jewish people. And he says, you see, not only are these people downtrodden, but their God has abandoned them as well. Look at what fate has done. Look at the fact that here we drew lots and all of a sudden it has come up trumps. Well, maybe a bad word in today's context, but it has come up with the um, um, the golden opportunity for us to destroy them when they're at the weakest. During the month of Adar, which was known as the time when Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses had died, when Moses had left the people. So this is the month of abandonment. This is the month when the lights have literally gone out for the Jewish people. And he says, oh, you see, the lots fell on that month. It is prophetic. It is um, God decreed. It is unbelievable. Even God has abandoned the Jewish people. And yet, through the power of people like Esther and Mordechai and those who were able to stand up for what was right and what was correct, which we'll talk a little bit more about a little bit later on in this program, they he had made the grossest and the most uh, the greatest miscalculation of the real strength of the Jewish people and from this depth of darkness and abandonment all of a sudden we rose up with the ability to be true to what we really are to really be counted as Jews to really stand up for what was right and what was correct and to be able to triumph by showing that we could stand together that we are together and therefore, the swing around, the total overturn, the turnaround from it being a month of darkness and abandonment, turned it into this month of joy, of happiness, of positive energy. It seemed to come about in the most mundane and physical kind of a way. There weren't great flashes of lightning and great splittings of Red Seas. This was something in which we played a significant role. And therefore, each and every one of us can feel the joy, the simcha of that great triumph. So I look forward to um, spending the next um, half an hour or so with you and elaborating a little bit more on the real meaning of what it is to be a Jew, where that all came from, and perhaps how it found its roots in the story of Purim. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. To continue with our um, discussion about Mishinichnas Adar Marbim Simcha, the idea of the month of Adar being the time of joy and why, perhaps it's important for us to think about what was the real strength of um, us, of the Jewish people, um, that warranted, that brought about this immediate change in uh, the atmosphere in the world where things swung around where things were completely completely different um, at the end of the events of Purim from what they were at the beginning both in our um, spiritual makeup as well as in our unity as well as in the atmosphere in the world perhaps it's important to note as a precursor to all of this that um, a tremendous amount of it, I think, has to do with the fact that for the very first time, we have the reference to being Jewish, to the concept of a Jew, actually, in the story of the Megillat Esther, the story of Purim. That might sound, might sound like a surprise to you, surely. Um, our uh, great forefather, Abraham, was the first Jew. We all know that. But in fact, he was never referred to as a Jew. He was referred to as 
perhaps an Ivri, which meant that he was what we translate as a Hebrew, which all really meant that he came from somewhere across the river. He was from the other side. He had come from somewhere else, both spiritually, emotionally, as well as bringing monotheism and the idea of having only one great God to the exclusion of everything and anything else that could ever possibly be. So where did this term Jew actually come from? Well, the term Jew is really a translation of the Hebrew word Yehuda. Yehuda means Judah. Jew comes from Judah. A Jew is a Yehudi. Yehudi means a Jew and translated that way. And surprise, surprise, the very first time that the word Yehudi is mentioned is in the Megillah, the Megillat Esther that we're going to be reading in two weeks' time on that beautiful Chag called Purim, which defines this month of Adar, which in turn gives us the insights into why it is that this is a change of pace and of space and of enthusiasm and of simcha, of joy, that this great and wondrous month heralds for us. So as we enter into this month and we go into this month effectively from this evening with Rosh Chodesh, Adar being tonight and tomorrow, tomorrow night and the next day, we're entering into the space perhaps where for the very first time we became defined or our forebears or our heroes of the story became defined as Yehudi, a Jew. It is the first foundation, it is the first time, the first claim to that name, Yehudi, and it comes from Yehuda. Now, there's a fashion, fascinating discussion uh, because, in fact, the person to whom we refer to as a Yehudi in the Megillah, in the book of Esther, is the man, the main hero of the story, Mordechai. Mordechai is called an Ish Yehudi. He's called a man of Yehuda, or translated as a Jew. And we could be forgiven for saying, well, it was the days of uh, tribalization. Uh, you and I don't necessarily know which tribe of the Jewish people we come from. And we do know that the tribe of Yehuda was very dominant, and for a long time, with the loss of several tribes and so on, it was predominantly the tribe of Yehuda. That remained, and therefore, could it not be that we're talking about Yehudi as a man from the tribe of Yehuda, um, the only remnant remaining of the Jewish people? But that is all a little bit more confusing because as we move along, it says Ish Yehudi Haya Beshushan Habira Ushmo Mordechai Ben Yair Ben Shimi Ben Kish Ish Yamini. It actually ends off. By defining him as coming from the tribe of Benjamin. Yemini means he was a Benjaminite. So if he came from the tribe of Benjamin, he wasn't really from the tribe of Yehuda. So what really is going on here? And if we think about it and we take a look at the commentators on it, they tell us something amazing. He was directly descendant from the tribe of Benjamin. He came from a place called Yerushalayim, from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem fell into the lot or the allotment of land for the tribe of Benjamin. That was where he was from. He was a Jerusalemite. He was a Yerushalmi. Ish Yemini, that's where he came from. But he gets the accolade of being called a Yehudi because he does something 
that warrants him being called a Jew. And so a Jew becomes a name to be worn with pride. But it's a name that really defines the type of things that Mordechai stood for and the type of things, of course, that the name heralds, which is what Yehuda stood for. And who was Yehuda? Well, Yehuda, we know, was the one of the sons of Jacob. He is, yes, one of the fathers of one of the greatest tribes of Israel. And, of course, he was blessed to have kingship, to have royalty um, come th- from and be granted to him and his descendants, that all the kings of Israel, from a, the blessing of Jacob to his son Yehuda, would come from his tribe. And it's quite amazing, therefore, to um, put under the microscope a little bit this incredible individual called Yehuda. Well, where do we meet Yehuda and what is he all about? Well, there are many, many different references to Yehuda and what he stood for. I'd like to just talk about two of them briefly, one of them a little bit more elaborately. Yehuda number one is a man who has a plan. We meet up with him, of course, when he makes the pronouncement on his brother Joseph to sell him into slavery. Now we think about that and we say, oh, what a horrible man. Well, in fact, the brothers all wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill Joseph. If we take a look at the story, that in fact made a deal that they were going to kill him. They all wanted to kill him. Comes to the fore, older brother, Ruvain, who comes out or seems to be the hero of the whole thing, but uh, Ruvain allows his brother Joseph to be tossed into a pit. He then seems to disappear for a while because he comes back and sees that the pit is empty, so he's not part of what happens next. He's not there for whatever reason. And Yehuda is left in the driving seat and he has to make a decision. He has to decide on what now ultimately is going to be best for the brothers, what's going to be best for the law to take its course, and what's going to be best for the people. What's going to be, le- be best for the future of uh, people on earth? He may even have and some as- as- ascribe to him some great uh, prophetic insight into the fact that he realized that what he was about to do was going to save the lives of the whole Jewish people, and it does in the, in the, eventually. And what he does is he sells his brother into slavery instead of killing him. He has a plan. He knows how to work something out. You may not like necessarily everything that he does, but he has a direction, he has a plan, he shows incredible leadership. The second real harsh, difficult reference to Yehuda is where he becomes embroiled in the very, very difficult and sordid story of his relationship with his daughter-in-law, with Tamar, the famous story of Yehuda and Tamar. We're not going to go into the details of it, but Tamar sets up a trap, in fact, for Yehuda. He falls right into it. And um, nobody would have known the better had it not been for the fact that when she is accused of uh, doing heinous things against her family and against um, Yehuda and his family, she simply says, let the man to whom these items belong, of course, she has some of his belongings. Let him, uh, he is the one 
who's actually responsible. And Yehuda stands up and says, it's me. He owns up to what he has done wrong. It's an incredible accolade for leadership. We take a look, wherever you're looking today, you think about leaders who keep on um, crying foul on everybody else except themselves. Everybody else is wrong and not them. They do not take responsibility for what they've done wrong. Yehuda teaches us that the acceptance of responsibility um, for what you have done, whether it means your demise, whether it means your end, whether it means your, Im- your imprisonment or even, God forbid, your death, Yehuda takes responsibility for what he has done, good, bad, and ugly. But perhaps more importantly is the fact that Yehuda takes responsibility for his brother. And here we see something quite profound and amazing in the Torah, where we see the behavior of Yehuda when Binyamin, when Binyamin is sent by um, their father, by Jacob, to accompany the brothers to Egypt at the request of Joseph. They don't know who Joseph is. They don't realize that he's actually their brother. He's sitting there as the viceroy of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. He calls for Binyamin, for Benjamin, to um, come down there. And Yehuda steps forward to his father and says, I'll take responsibility for him. And those could have been empty words. But we see that later on in the narrative and the story, which is uh, one that is absolutely fascinating, when Joseph has eventually engineered that the brothers should return to him by the trick of placing his uh, chalice, his cup, in the bag of Binyamin, of Benjamin. And therefore he has him on a trumped-up charge of um, having stolen something that is so precious and so valuable to the, to, the, to the leadership of Egypt. Yehuda steps forward and he says to Joseph, Listen, Joseph, in no uncertain terms, I'm telling you now that I'm prepared to go to war with you to protect my brother. I'm prepared to do whatever it takes. Yehuda, think about it, standing there in that moment of um, being surrounded completely by Joseph and all his men, by the entire system and military of Egypt. He is quite prepared to put his life on the line, to step forward and to say, I am going to take responsibility for this child, for this young man, for this boy, for this, he wasn't really a child anymore, he was well in his 30s at the time, Binyamin, but I've given my word that I'm going to take responsibility, and he's prepared to take responsibility. So taking responsibility is not only taking responsibility for what we may or we may not have done, taking responsibility for our children, taking responsibility for our people, taking responsibility for the youngster who uh, perhaps is not being properly protected, Yehuda does that. He steps forward and he says, I don't care, and I'm, no matter what the consequences are, I know that I'm here on a divine mission, and I know that I've made a pledge and I've made a promise that I will look after my brother. And he steps forward with great, great guts, with great, great um, self-application, as well as an absolute... Um, non-care, non-caring about himself and the possible consequences. And he says, I will at all costs take responsibility. If we think about it and we fast forward to the story of Purim, Mordechai behaves in a very, very similar fashion. He too 
is confronted with a moment of truth where he needs to take some responsibility. He's taking responsibility for the Jewish people, but he's taking responsibility for seeing to it that Homon, Achashverosh, and their ilk are not going to be allowed to destroy the Jewish people. He realizes, as Yehuda does, that we've got to subscribe to something a little bit higher than us. We've got to realize that our real strength doesn't come only from our power in our muscles that we may have accumulated by gymming or by lifting weights, but that our power and our strength really comes from our spiritual beings, from our neshamas, from our souls, and from our connection with the Almighty. That our power and our strength really comes from something that's much higher and higher than us. And at that moment when he is challenged, he could have been forgiven as everybody would have forgiven him by bowing down to Haman as he requested. But Mordechai realizes that this is a moment of test and of truth. It's a moment when he needs to do something that would then go on to define what it means to be a Jew which is to be able to stand up for what is right at the moment of truth, to have the strength and the courage of your convictions to say, this is what I believe in, this is the truth, this is what I'm going to stand up for, and I'm not going to tolerate um, the um, abrogation of it, the corruption of it. I'm not going to tolerate that darkness and that... um, sheep-like behavior that everybody seems to be going along with. I'm going to stand up for what is right and what is correct. He doesn't fight. Um, Mordechai doesn't fight with anybody. He doesn't protest. He doesn't hold up signs that say um, Haman must fall or Achashverosh must fall. He stands up for what is correct. My principle is I do not bow down to idols. My principle is I will not bow down to you. My principle is, I'm a Jew. Yehudi. He is called then an Ish Yehudi. He becomes the man who follows perhaps the example of Yehuda. That even though you might be confronting the highest authority in the land, or as it was then, the highest authority in the world, you're going to stand up for what is right and what is correct. You're not going to allow yourself to be compromised or to compromise on your principles, on the principles of your faith on the principles of your Judaism, where we've got God's law versus man's law, or God's law versus the law that is being um, propagated, expounded upon, and thrust upon you by um, all the king's horses and all the king's men, by leadership, by royalty, no matter what. We're going to stand up for what is right and what is correct. That defines a Yehudi. So perhaps to redefine and to think about it a little bit, it's all about acceptance of responsibility realizing that not everybody else is going to go along and do the dirty work sometimes you yourself have to take care of it realizing that there comes and there come very often moments of truth where each and every one of us has to take that responsibility responsibility not only for our actions the ability to say we're sorry when we realize that we're wrong the ability to apologize the ability to make good on the things that we may have broken, um, and hopefully all of them can be fixed. But to take that responsibility to the next level of saying, I now am responsible for my people. I'm responsible for Am Yisrael. I'm responsible for every one of my brothers, and I'm responsible, in a way, for mankind. 
It's not for other people to take that responsibility. It's me. That is the definition that the Megillah seems to give us about a Yehudi. That's what being a Yehudi actually is all about. Hopefully we can live up to that. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. So the fact that we're about to enter the month of joy, the month of Adar, the fact that we have these beautiful images of what it means to be a Jew, perhaps putting them together, we could think about how do we instill that feeling of joy, that feeling of satisfaction, of accomplishment, that positive outlook. How do we actually inculcate and integrate that into our lives? And perhaps it is through being a little bit more Jewish, to making ourselves the Jews that we should be, where we take responsibility, where we don't only take responsibility for our actions and we don't only learn how to say we're sorry and apologize, but that we take responsibility for each other, that we're not satisfied unless we have seen to the well-being and um, the Jewish education and the Jewish upliftment and the... um, physical and spiritual well-being of our fellow men when we've taken responsibility for that and when we've taken responsibility for each and every individual and our community as a whole where we've got the communal understanding and the communal discipline to realize that we're all in this together that we have a role that we can play and each and every one of us can make such a huge such a vast difference that we go even further than that And that is that we stand up for what is right and what is correct. That we don't be found wanting when um, um, people sometimes in a political and in other arenas are um, caught wanting for having stood by and seen um, the corruption and seen the issues and the problems and not only allowed them to happen but have sometimes jumped on the bandwagon when they have but that um, we act and behave like the proverbial Jew of Mordechai or of Yehuda, who was able to stand up and say, I'm not going to tolerate this. I am going to show you that this is how a Jew should behave. This is what we should be doing. And it's not about finger pointing and saying, you've done wrong and I'm going to be one up on you. But it's rather saying, I've got principles and my principles are not going to be broken. My principles are not going to be corrupted. No matter how much pressure there may be of a physical or a spiritual or a societal nature, I'm not going to succumb. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to stand steadfast because I'm a Yehudi, because I'm a Jew. And surely that will be the real catalyst and the real foundation for bringing real joy into our lives. A feeling of accomplishment, a feeling of satisfaction, a feeling of meaning and a feeling of being able to have that positive outlook on life by realizing that um, there is a much bigger picture that we're involved in, in doing God's holy work, in making sure that we're partners with God in the continuance and the creation of this world, which um, is re-evolving and recreating all the time. Let's be caught on the right side for a change, on the side of being a Yehudi, of being a Jew. And in that way, undoubtedly, we'll bring about the ultimate simcha, the ultimate joy that uh, we hope and pray for each and every day, the coming of Mashiach when there will be peace on earth and all of the difficulties of the past will long be forgotten. I look forward to being back with you again next week, same time, same place. 
um, on Judaism 101.9. I want to wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead. See you again next week.